There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Jen White. Before we start the show, I want to take a moment to thank you our 1A listeners, and anyone listening who donates to public media. After all, public media means that you, the public, support it. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. And for anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get actively involved in creating a more informed public. That's our whole mission at NPR. That's why we're here. With 1A, you're part of the conversation. Your donation helps 1A bring you not only conversations that matter, but also stories, guests, and surprises that lift you up. To help this work keep going, please make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations in the NPR network. What really matters is that you're part of the community that makes this work possible. Listener support is a powerful resource. It takes all of us doing what we can, when we can, to keep this free public service going. So please, give today at donate.npr.org slash 1A. Thanks. Hi, this is Elaine from Tucson, Arizona. I first heard about climate change as an undergrad at the University of Michigan in 1970. That was almost 54 years ago. I don't know why the people on the earth itself as a whole have not embraced this idea or believe it. Hi, I've recently gotten involved with an effort to reforest with the American chestnut, which is a species that was almost wiped out by a blight. There are very few pure American chestnuts left. Plants and animals across the world are struggling. Earth's biodiversity is declining at the fastest rate in history. That's according to a 2019 United Nations report. There's a lot of issues driving the crisis. Invasive species, pollution, climate change, and a lot of those trace back to humans. For this edition of our series, SOS Save Our Species, we take a closer look at global biodiversity. There are a few international bodies dedicated to biodiversity conservation, but those organizations don't include each country's own plan for conservation. So how do they work together? What are the difficulties of working as an international community to preserve the world's biodiversity? We get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get to. Stay with us. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. 
But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's bring in our guests. Jessica Hellman is an ecologist. She's also the executive director of the Institute of the Environment at the University of Minnesota. Jessica, welcome to the program. Hello. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jen. Also with us is Dino Grandoni, a wildlife and climate reporter at The Washington Post. Dino, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. And Angela, Angelo Villagomez. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and Ocean Co-Lead at the America the Beautiful for All Coalition. That's a group of 200 organizations working toward conservation here in the U.S. And he joins us in studio. Angela, welcome back. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me back on the show. Dino, almost a year ago, nearly 190 countries signed on to a global biodiversity framework. What does this agreement do? Yeah, so... Last December in Montreal, um, countries gathered together to agree to a number of things, the headline being uh, trying to protect 30% of land and 30% of water by the end of the decade, by 2030. So it's often called the 30 by 30 goal. And this is a really ambitious goal because we're talking about a lot of the surface area of the earth to cordon off in some degree to species to be their habitat and... um, keep them safe. So ambitious goal, but how much has gotten done within the last year? Yeah, uh, not much. Uh, Right now, we have about a sixth of land and about a twelfth of our oceans protected in some manner. So that's quite far away from a third. And have you seen over the past year a few countries like Mexico and Ecuador um, creating new national parks and new forest areas uh, that are getting protection? But really, we're we're, as a world, falling short of this goal so far. Angelo, COP28 begins this week in Dubai. Uh, that's the UN Conference on Climate Change. How does biodiversity fit into that conference? Well, I've got a lot of colleagues there, um, and they're going to be advocating uh, for strong outcomes. And I'll, I'll tell you, they're not hopeful. Hmm. Um, you know, there is, there's, there's these COPs, and you keep hearing about COP28, you hear about COP15. Uh, a COP is a, a conference of the parties. Uh, and it's uh, basically it's a, an annual meeting for a treaty. And there's other COPs. There's also the CITES COP. Um, and the, the, the climate COP, for the most part, is focused on uh, carbon um, and keeping carbon in the ground, um, reducing the, the carbon that we're burning in our cars and our homes and our businesses. Uh, but it's, we're facing a dual crisis of, of climate and nature. And it's really hard to, to separate the two. So it is worth talking about the two together, um, even though we have a separate biodiversity conference and a separate uh, climate conference. You'll hear folks talk about nature-based solutions. Um, and this is just the idea that uh, we can reduce our, our carbon footprint using nature, using the ocean. Um, and you know, on, on land, this is things like making sure that old growth mature trees are, are staying in place and that we're not cutting down. But it also involves infrastructure. You know, are we are we building our our the way we move our products, our, our roads, and are, are we doing it in such a way uh, that we can reduce the amount of carbon it takes to do those things? You know, Jessica, when we talk about international cooperation on biodiversity, we'll probably hear a few acronyms thrown around this hour. What international bodies are dedicated to biodiversity work? Well, when you hear, yes, you will hear a lot of acronyms thrown around. And there are also acronyms at different 
in there's the international ones. There are also national ones. We have our own reporting system and our own accounting system. So this week, folks will hear about the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the COP meetings. Uh, those are focused on climate. Associated with those meetings is a, a series of scientific assessments conducted by something called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and they issue a series of reports. But And it's fascinating to think about how important nature is in those climate conversations. On biodiversity, you'll hear about the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, which is connected by origin to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And there's also an organization uh, called the, a scientific body called the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity Ecosystem Services. Isn't that a, <laughs> a mouthful? We call that <laughs> IPBES or IPBES. And that's a scientific body that is giving information um, in some policy analysis to this international body that's negotiating how to tackle nature conservation. So those are a few. And then there's also the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. What does that organization do? Right. So uh, CITES is another group that uh, is principally about um, not um, preventing the trade of endangered species. It's quite a bit older than the climate conventions, which frankly have been going on now for a long time. You can also tell how long these um, conventions have been going on by their number, mm -hmm. COP28. That tells you how many years these meetings or the biological diversity ones are COP. We just finished COP15. Uh, and CITES is about preventing the trade of endangered species. So its origin has to do with things like ivory and um, furs and pelts that would be tra um, traded internationally and preventing that loss to exotic and endangered species. You know, when I hear these these different groups, these different acronyms, Angela, it makes me wonder how siloed the work is and whether that's working against the overall goal of some of these organizations. Yeah, it's almost like you need a master's degree in acronyms uh, <laughs> just to be able to do this work. Um, yeah, that's no, absolutely true. And there's also the, the Convention of Migratory Species. Mm. There's the uh, Specially Protected Area and Wildlife Protocol. There's also the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, for the United States, which is really very wealthy, or for the EU, uh, where we have lots of capacity uh, to attend all of these meetings, you know, we, we have no shortage of NGOs and government staff uh, at the State Department that can go to these sorts of things. But can you imagine if you're from a country like Fiji mm. or Palau um, or one of the African countries? You know, it's probably like one guy uh, and or one woman. And, and these are places that are often the hardest hit. Oh, absolutely, by uh, climate on, change on, yeah. on the front lines of climate change. Um, you know, you brought up CITES, and one one of the great things about CITES is that it actually has teeth to it because it was uh, it was negotiated so long ago. Uh, there actually can be repercussions uh, to countries who do not um, meet the standards that are that are laid out in in the um, the uh, treaty. Uh, some of the more recent treaties aren't as strong. They're, they're, the decision is done by consensus, um, and oftentimes you get to the lowest common denominator. Um, but you, you talk about siloing, and there was a decision. There was a, um, a UN decision that came down this year about uh, developing marine protected areas on the high seas. It's it's called the High Seas Agreement, mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't perfect. Um, but you know, many many people, many of my colleagues have worked literally decades, more than twenty years, to get to this agreement. Um, and this is on the high seas, and the, these are the areas that are very very far from shore, two hundred miles off of shore. 
And typically, uh, the the way we've managed the oceans have been kind of kind of a, the wild west. And you know, maybe there's somebody who manages the tuna. Uh, you know, maybe there's somebody who manages the seabed mining. But there was no place where this was coming all together. Yeah. Um, and so, the UN treaty hopefully will be a place where all of these different sectors can meet in the same room. And this may be the first time. I'm not going to say it's the first time, but it's it's rare in these international negotiations that all of that can happen in one place. And you know. Angelo mentioned the U.S., but what other countries are major players when it comes to international meetings on biodiversity? Yeah, so um, really one of the interesting things about protecting biodiversity compared to, you know, solving climate change is that our the real stewards of biodiversity in the world are uh, developing nations in places like South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, places near the equator where there tends to be a really high diversity of species. So those countries are really big, important players when it comes to uh, whether or not um, we're able to achieve any of these biodiversity goals. And um, one of the real tensions that comes up in some of these negotiations is over money, over um, these, these nations say they need the support of richer nations, places like the United States and Europe, to help conserve their rainforests and other habitat and that um, from like illegal logging or illegal mining. And um, it's often the the richer countries that don't want to pony up enough money to do that. We're going to head to a quick break, but coming up, how trying to combat climate change and trying to save our species can be a hard line to walk. We'll be back with more in a moment. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way, Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. (laughs) Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wild Card, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Jessica, we were talking about some of the international bodies that are working around climate solutions, uh, protecting biodiversity. You've advised state and national governments on conservation. What difficulties come up when you're trying to connect science and best practices to administrative action? That's a terrific question. You were talking earlier about siloing one um, these different entities 
are siloed. We approach climate change in a different negotiation process than we do biodiversity. But those of us who actually work on and study those issues, we don't silo them the same way. They're all much uh, interrelated. So when we think about doing nature conservation, we have to confront how we will address climate change and the realities of climate change that are already appearing and affecting ecosystems. Uh, And we have to include that in our nature conservation plans. So uh, it it can be a challenge, however, because many times the rules and regulations aren't yet ready to do that. So working with governments, even local landowners or on a very small spatial scale, they don't have the authority or the existing regulations or sometimes even the mission that directly allows them to Uh, address some of these climate issues. And the reason why that's important is because we're going to need to consider some new tools or approaches for doing conservation specifically to address climate change. And those are going to require some new authorities on behalf of government as well. You know, Angelo, according to the UN, the biggest driver of biodiversity loss around the world is how people use land in our seas. What are some examples? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's habitat loss and it's hunting. Um, so on the ocean, it's fishing. Um, and, and fishery science is, is very simple. When you, If you catch too many fish, there's going to be fewer fish in the ocean. Um, and if you figure out a way to catch fewer fish, you'll have more fish that are, that are living in the ocean. Um, but also habitat loss um, on land. Um, and I, I, I've seen this in just in, in my lifetime. I, I think of what the world I lived in back in the 1980s um, is just so different. Um, and, you know, some folks who are a little bit older may remember that when you went for your Sunday drive, uh, you'd come home and there would be insects all over your, your windshield. Like, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Like, what happened to all the bugs? Do you know, how is the U.S. approaching species conservation differently from other parts of the world? Um, you know, one thing that the U.S. isn't doing is it's not part of the, um, the agreement that uh, nations made back in December to, again, protect 30% of land and 30% of water by 2030. So participation in that, which would require the Senate passing a treaty, which is very, very difficult to do, um, might be a step that they could take. One thing that the Biden administration is doing is it's setting out its own 30 by 30 goal, and it's calling it America the Beautiful, where they want to um, protect more area uh, within the United States for the conservation of species. And that is being met by what you might expect opposition from um, a lot of people who live uh, in more rural parts of this country, I'm thinking kind of the western United States. So that's going to be a real challenge for the administration to achieve its goals. Hmm. You know, I, I'm, I want to ask you all this sort of bigger picture ph- philosophical question. We're talking about nations with different governmental systems um, that may have a different cultural approach um, even within the uh, an individual com- country, there may be different cultural relationships to to nature, to the lived environment, and it feels like we're working in these in multiple silos. It's not just organizational; it's country based, it's cultural, um, it's climate change versus conservation. And what do you think are the major barriers to? somehow approaching this more holistically, because it's not as if you can limit the effects of biodiversity loss or climate change to a single country. Some countries are going to fill it more quickly than others. But what are the barriers to getting to that place? And I I want to hear from all of you on this. Jessica, I'll come to you first. 
Well, Jen, I think the if we start with the 30 by 30 idea, which is at the center of the current Convention on Biological Diversity um, uh, negotiations and uh, what was just passed in Montreal this past f- fall, we have not very clearly defined what counts in that 30%. Mm. And it's pretty clear that that is not just going to be land and waters set behind a fence where people are not allowed to go. It's going to need to be areas that are actively used and managed and integrated in together with people. So it could be that forests, for example, here in the United States that are under active management, that's a form of habitat conservation. We know looking around the world that there are some spectacular examples of indigenous-led conservation where lands are you know, used and culturally important to groups of people, and they are stewarding them in a way that also fosters biodiversity. So finding ways to align the way we do our business and what our economy cares about and what we value together with land conservation is probably the biggest global challenge. And you're right, that'll look different in different places, but there are some common themes about productive and sustainable ways of doing that alongside with uh, our wild relatives um, around the world. Angelo, your thoughts? I, I really think a lot of it comes down to economics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you asked, why don't governments do this? And I, I, th- I thought, well, if governments listen to science, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so like, it, it's, it's up to the, you know, the, the, the advocate community to figure out what drives people. And you know, at the end of the day, uh, whether it's President Joe Biden, uh, President of the United States, or it's you know the Minister of Environment from a small country, it's a human being and it's a person, and, and we're, we're all driven by different things. Um, and there, there is the, the great thing about thirty by thirty is you know I, I agree what counts is a, a point of contention, but there is this global buy-in at this this current moment where you have the highest levels of government you know from. President Biden, President Macron, to all these leaders of small island developing states who are, you know, in this moment saying, yes, we need to address climate change. Yes, we should protect nature. Uh, yes, we need to ensure that indigenous people are involved. Um, but the way that expresses itself is going to be unique to every country and to every community. Um, and I have a friend, Dr. Asha DeVos, and she says, every coastline needs a hero. Um, and that's what this movement needs, is it, it's not going to be just one savior of I alone can do it, I can go out there and, and save nature. It, it's actually, it's going to be an all of humanity project to protect the creation um, that supports who we are and how we've become who we are and, and, and how we how we just um, live as humans on mm. this planet. Dino, I'd love to hear from you as well. Yeah, I think one of the barriers we're seeing, and I think we're going to continue to see over the next several years and decades is the difficulty of addressing both climate change and biodiversity loss at the same time, which we've touched on a little bit earlier. Um, you know, on the one hand, we need to be conserving and protecting rainforest and peatland in order to keep carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and have any hope of achieving the 1.5C goals that um, the United Nations has set for itself. But on the other hand, um, to get the clean energy we need to make that transition will often mean building infrastructure um, in areas where we have species that we care about and want to protect. Um, you know, former President Trump likes to over-exaggerate the effect that wind turbines have on birds, but it is true that wind turbines do kill birds. So we have to be very deliberate about where we put those turbines, um, keeping them away from flyways. Uh, for birds to make sure that 
we minimize that impact. Solar panels uh, often do very well in desert environments, but oftentimes species like tortoise and other animals we care about live in those places. And then there's the real hot issue of seabed mining, um, where several companies want to go into the deep sea and uh, extract the metals that we need for um, batteries and electric vehicles and other devices. Uh, but down there is an entire ecosystem um, full of animals that we are just beginning to understand. And there are a lot of folks really worried about the effect of mining on those animals down below. Hey, Jessica, as an ecologist, how do you think about that tension between climate change and biodiversity? They're inherently linked and they overlap, as Dino just laid out, but they can also at times be in conflict. Yeah, I think this point about renewable energy and deploying renewable energy and also the materials we need for battery storage and other kinds of things that enable us to be successful at deploying renewable energy are um, potential points of conflict and that need to be managed together. But there is, if you turn that around, there are also some really interesting opportunities. You know, I live in the U.S. Midwest, for example, where we're deploying solar um, out in various you know areas across the across the Midwest, and it's actually possible to do prairie restoration under those solar installations in areas where the prairie has been eliminated because of agriculture and other forms of development. So, siting solar might actually be an opportunity for us to reintroduce some habitats that have been lost. So, I think we need to look for those connection points. The other challenge that I think about frequently is actually how do we need to change and modify the way that we do nature conservation and ecosystem management in order to account for climate change. We're going to need to manage some of our forests differently, some of our species differently, uh, and get ready for that. And then a third point that's a really important one, which has come up earlier, is that ecosystems are really a vital part of confronting climate change, both for people, both tools that help sequester carbon, for example, that will reduce the amount of climate change that we experience, but also that make life more tolerable in the face of climate change, um, that what we call these ecosystem services, whether it's the importance of habitats and trees and healthy ecosystems within the urban environment to keep us cool under our extreme heat events under climate change. So there are just so many points of connectivity. It makes it awfully interesting, frankly, for uh, someone in a university environment and students to be working on these really important topics. Let's take a quick pause here. Up next, a hopeful story about life recovery almost 9,000 miles from the U.S. and what it means for that community. Back with more in a moment. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. 
Let's now turn to a place that's had quite a bit of success reintroducing species. That is Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. After more than 25 years of war ending in 1992, over 90% of Gorongosa's large mammals were gone. But that wildlife has bounced back. In 2008, Mozambique's government signed a 20-year contract with the Gorongosa Restoration Project to lock in support for the park's ongoing restoration. But that recovery is just as important to wildlife as it is to the communities in Mozambique. Larissa Souza is the Associate Director of Communications at Gorongosa National Park, and she joins us from Mozambique. Larissa, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here. What works? What work goes into making sure the wildlife at Gorongosa can thrive? Um, I think a lot of what we do is working outside of the park. And um, a lot of what we do is work with the communities because if we let it, nature can restore itself. So what we do is work a lot more outside of um, the soft boundaries that we have uh, between the park and the communities. So what we do is we try to cater for the basic needs of the communities, uh, this being health, education, sustainable agriculture, and also making sure they know about conservation and how this uh, park, which is now being restored and working uh, around um, uh, different activities that they can benefit from it. So they need to see it thrive and also feel the benefits coming out of it. What animals have been reintroduced to the park? So Gorongosa National Park is about 1 million acres, and we have uh, reintroduced um, many species, starting from herbivorous. We have reintroduced buffaloes, elephants. We have reintroduced zebras, hippos. Uh, and now we're focusing a lot more on the balance of the animals. So we are focusing on the carnivorous population, where we have the wild dogs, which had disappeared for 30 years uh, and we didn't have wild dogs in Gorongosa. So they're now here thriving and we even able to, to give to other places like Malawi for them to, to have uh, uh, wild dogs in their parks as well. We also um, reintroduced hyenas, um, shackles. And so we're just trying to now work on the balance of the animals here in the park. You mentioned the park having soft boundaries. How is the park an inherent part of the community? So the the the, the community is part of the park. Um, we call this this area um, uh, buffer zone, a sustainable development area where the community live, and most of our employees are from the community. So they they are part of of this ecosystem. We we can't forget that us as humans, we are, are also part of nature. So we we just have to 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 make sure we we all coexist and live um, uh, as one ecosystem, making sure there is a balance between the needs of the wildlife as well as of the people. I would love for you to tell us about some of the activities you do. You started a girls' club program in partnership with the park. What did the girls in that club get to be involved in? So the idea of, of the girls' clubs is making sure that girls have an opportunity, have an opportunity of dreaming, of pursuing their dreams. And we are now working in 100 schools in different communities here where we create what we call the girls' clubs. And the girls' clubs is supposed to be a safe space where the girls are able to, to learn, to read and write, um, to uh, explore their talents, 
to also be able to talk about sexual reproductive health, talk about boyfriends, uh, where they have time to play, because most of the girls... Um, in the community, there is no specific time for the girls to play because they are the caregivers. They are the ones who normally have to uh, ensure that their siblings are catered for, that there's food on the table when they pay, the, their mothers mostly are away from home. And so we also emphasize on the idea of human rights, of children's rights, where they have to play, but they also have duties. And so the, the girls clubs is just one of our after school programs under the education sector, where we make sure that girls are in school and outside of early marriages. And then with time, we started growing and seeing the need of having other programs, such as um, helping a teacher in teacher training, um, also work on conservation with eco clubs. We also focus on the youth. So just trying to see where there is a need and also try and cater for that. But we also think that the, the parents, the older generation, needs to have education. So we do adult education to whoever wants to. And we also work in alternative um, uh, livelihoods where we make sure that the people don't need to come into the park to do poaching. So what they do is have uh, uh, training and technical uh, support uh, for their agriculture. They also learn to do forestry. Uh, we're doing coffee, we're doing honey, fishery, uh, honey. So just trying to explore all, all of these resources that they have that can be an alternative and make sure that they understand why the park needs to be restored and uh, uh, that we don't leave a, a footprint there but that the, the people are also catered for and there's this balance and there's uh, this approach of one health, one ecosystem, and we are just part, uh, one part of that ecosystem. So we need to coexist. That's Larissa Souza. She's the Associate Director of Communications at Gorongosa National Park in Mozambique. Larissa, thank you so much for your time. Hey, Angelo, when I hear Larissa talking about how this park has become not just a place for protecting biodiversity, reintroducing species, but it's about forming a relationship and and an understanding of how humans are part of the ecosystem. They are not the ecosystem. Yeah, conservation is people. And, you know, the, the great thing about that story is clearly they're getting the funding that they need mm -hmm. to pay for rangers, to pay for educational programs, to pay for jeeps, um, and, and to pay for enforcement. And that's going to be the next step with whatever happens with this 30 by 30 and with all of these endangered species initiatives, uh, it works really well in the United States because we have, you know, the Department of Interior, <laughs> uh, the National Park System and, and uh, the National um, – all those other groups. And we have NGOs that support this. Um, a lot of countries around the world don't have that level of um, implementation. So it's great to see that it's working out in Mozambique. Well, I want to make sure we, we – at least spend a little bit of time sharing some success stories like Gore and Gosa. And I want to give you each to share something that's giving you hope right now or, or a place where you're seeing some success when we talk about restoring biodiversity. Angela, I'll start with you. Uh, I'm, I'm the ocean guy, and I've, I've spent most of my last 15 years working on marine protected areas in the United States. Um, most, most people don't know this, but 99% of the acreage of protected areas in the ocean is actually in the Western Pacific around Hawaii um, and around the, um, the U.S. Pacific territories. I'm, I'm from Saipan, which in the North American Islands. And uh, uh, 
Bush designated protected areas out there, Obama designated protected areas out there, and we're just starting to see uh, active management take place, and uh, it's it's really exciting uh, to to have to to see the the first generation of great ocean parks uh, come to fruition. Jessica, what about for you? Where are you either seeing something that's working well or something that gives you hope? I worry quite a bit about what we might consider sort of shifting baselines or how people conceive of nature and the experiences of young people in nature. I think about quite a few species just in the United States, some of which we can thank the Endangered Species Act, and we can also thank policies that we enacted that changed the threats that these species were facing. Take something like the bald eagle, where actually when I was a kid, they were quite uncommon, and it was a great privilege to to encounter one. You know, here in the upper Midwest now, my daughter, my 16-year-old, thinks that seeing one is quite routine mm. because they have... They're now flourishing and it's not, that's her normal is a world that has abundant bald eagles. And that's truly wonderful. And that took work on our part. Dino? Yeah. um, One of the animals that really is giving me encouragement is the tiger. Um, You know, right now there's as many as uh, 5,500 of them um, prowling through like the jungles of Asia, which is up 40% from, you know, a previous assessment in 2015. And, you know, part of that has to do with that we've been better about monitoring tigers and understanding where they are and actually counting them. But another big part of that is that a lot of countries in Asia have protected more of those areas, and that's a real good sign of um, international cooperation. Well, we'll leave the conversation there. That's Dino Grandoni. He's a wildlife and climate reporter at The Washington Post. Jessica Hellman, an ecologist and the executive director of the Institute of the Environment at the University of Minnesota. And Angelo Villagomez. He's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and ocean co-lead at the America the Beautiful for All Coalition. That's a group of 200 organizations working toward conservation here in the U.S. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Jorgelina Manorea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of America. University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR.